We're going to be in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2 today. Where Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray. Lord, in Christ alone, we get to come to you, to come into your presence, speak to you, and we're grateful for that, and we will be grateful forever for that. We're grateful also for your word. We're grateful for your spirit. We are grateful for the salvation you offer us in Christ. Today, as we come to your word, we come to these two incredible verses in the middle of this incredible book. We pray for your leading. Pray for your help. Lord, these are deep waters. I pray that you would remove from our minds distractions. Help us to focus on your word. I pray that your spirit would speak to us today and that we would be sensitive. Pray that our minds would be engaged and that this morning we would be rendering in this place our true spiritual worship. Lord, we ask for your help. We ask for your work. We ask that you would be glorified in this time. We pray in the wonderful name of Jesus. So we've been uh, speaking on discipleship for some time now, most of the summer, and as we have uh, come to, obviously summer's over, you could tell by the temperature yesterday morning was pretty low, summertime's over, but we're wrapping up this series on discipleship, and we wanted to uh, take just two final weeks to put the final touches, not on discipleship, but on our series of discipleship. And so today we wanted to talk about discernment, discernment. And so that's why we've titled today's message, A Disciple's Discernment. And uh, we thought that would be a fitting thing as we live in a world that would lie to us at every turn. We live in a world where in certain places and in many places, suicide bombers will walk in the door and blow themselves up so they can kill some Christians. We live in a world that would destroy us either from within or from without. And so discernment is an important thing because the attack might not come in the form of someone sneaking into your church to blow it up. The attack might come in the form of a book that you get that's not true, that's not biblical, that would lead you astray from the biblical teaching. The attack could come in all kinds of forms. And so we need discernment. We need discernment. We need to be able to 
decide to determine between what's right and what's wrong. What is God's will and what is not God's will? We need discernment. And so we wanted to conclude this series with two messages, one on discernment, and then we'll wrap the rest of it up next week. But discernment's a big topic. And so we turn to Romans chapter 12. And I, I'll let you know that I have a, uh, a knack. I have a special ability that you probably didn't know about. But if I'm given the opportunity to speak on just a couple of verses out of a book, I will probably pick the, the verse, and I'll do this on accident, the verses that are crucial, critical to the entire argument of the book. And so that's what I've done today. I didn't realize that when I chose it, but everything hinges right here in Romans 12. Everything hinges. If you think about Romans 1 through 11, this is the greatest work of theology ever written is the book of Romans. And you think about the theological section, chapters 1 through 11. They're all referred to and tied up in the word that's in your verse 1 there, therefore. Therefore. He's drawing a conclusion and saying, in light of these 11 chapters, in light of this incredible truth, therefore, these things. Therefore. And so a, a great hermeneutical principle is when you run across the word therefore, or wherefore, you should ask the question, what's the therefore, therefore? It's an important question. I know it sounds silly, but it's an excellent one. And so that gives us the challenge of replaying in our minds the theology of chapters 1 through 11. Because that's why the there, the therefore, is there. is because of those chapters. And if you think about all that has come before, and I can't recap it for you, and I can't quote it for you, and probably don't even have time to read it to you, but recapping what goes on in the, in the book of Romans theologically. I'm going to hit the high points, okay? It starts off pretty bad, right? We start talking about the fallenness of man, that man willfully turns away from God, willfully runs away. He would rather do his own thing. And the result that we read about in Romans chapter 1, verse 28 starts a downward spiral that's just horrible. Chapter 1 and verse 28 says this, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And then if you read that paragraph, it's, it's like uh, reading the news, just the downward spiral. God has given us up to a debased mind Mankind knew there was God, rejected him because he wanted to do his own stuff. And so God says, all right, you can have it. And he gives him up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And they're filled with all manner of unrighteousness. And, and, it, and it gets worse and it gets worse and it gets worse. Man's condition is bad. It is bad, right? It's not a good situation going on with mankind. We don't always do all of the evil that we could possibly do. But everything that mankind does is tainted with evil because he's got that debased mind. And so that's mankind's plight. Well, what about the Jews? What about this covenant that God makes with Israel? Well, he does make that covenant with Israel and he reveals things about himself. But even the, the people who were following that covenant in the Old Testament, 
trying to follow that covenant, still they were in sin. If you look to Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 3 has a quotation from a couple different places in the Old Testament that talks about what about the good people? What about the good people? Look at the last part of verse 10 there in chapter 3. None is righteous. No, not, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Not even one. And so that's where we are. Now, I, I know I'm summarizing massive amounts of theology. But that's where we are. None righteous. We don't get to come before God. We don't get to stand in his presence. Man doesn't. Because of this sin, because of this debased mind, because of this fallen nature, because we are not righteous, we are in rebellion against God. So what's God going to do? What's God going to do? He would be fully right and, and, and within his rights, he would be just to snuff man out. He would be. He would be just. We're in rebellion against him. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He deals the way he does with the nation of Israel. He prophesies the coming of this Messiah. The Messiah comes who is fully God and fully man. Completely God, completely man, 100% righteous, does not have the sin nature and the debased mind that you and I have. He comes on the scene. He goes to the cross. He lives a life of obedience. He goes to the cross. He takes all of the punishment that you and I deserve on himself, goes to the cross, bears that, pays that penalty so that you and I don't have to. God lays all of his wrath on Jesus so that it doesn't have to fall on us. Jesus dies. The debt is paid. And then God raises him from the dead. He really is the Son of God, and death really cannot keep him. He really is alive, and his offering, his sacrifice, has been accepted by God. That gift of that payment of that sin is now offered to us to be received by faith, by putting our trust in him, by looking to the offering that he made and putting our trust in in that offering, putting our trust in him. Salvation is by grace through faith. It's not by stuff that we do, which is a good thing because we just read Romans 3. No one, no one, no one. And so salvation is in Christ. It's by grace through faith. So the, the penalty has been paid for those who are in Christ. Romans 8.1. If you don't know this, you should know it. Flip over there just so you can underline it if you haven't done so already. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It's paid. The penalty is paid. You get to be in Christ not because of what you accomplished, not because of what you did, not because of what you earned, not because of some sacrifice you made but because of what God has done in his mercy. Salvation is offered to us. 
And there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That summarizes super quickly the theology of Romans 1 through 11. Martin Luther said in, his, in his, the introduction to his commentary on Romans that it's worth memorizing the whole book. It's worth memorizing. So I replay all of that theology, all of chapters 1 through 11, super quickly, super quickly, for two reasons. First of all, because the therefore is there. And the therefore is Paul standing and looking back at those 11 chapters and drawing conclusions, saying, in light of all of that stuff, therefore, let me draw this conclusion, let me give this instruction now in light of all of that. That's one reason. The second reason is because of God's mercies. Look at what he says there. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, When you review Romans 1 through 11 in your mind, you can't help but worship God for being merciful. Because I'm that guy in Romans 3, not righteous. I'm that guy in Romans 128 with a debased mind. That's me. But God, being rich in mercy, saved me because of what he did. That's the salvation that he offers. It's enormous. It's his work. It's something that he does in us. It's by grace he does it. We receive it through faith. It's an amazing thing. And that should be worshipful right there. And so he starts off talking about true spiritual worship here by saying, I appeal to you by God's mercies. And lest there be any confusion about what mercies we're talking about, we have all of Romans 1 through 11 to explain what those mercies are. And we're the recipients of those. God is merciful. God is merciful. I love how he summarizes God's mercies. Look up just, just up uh, from 12.1. Look up to uh, 11.32. Chapter 11, verse 32. I love this summary of God's mercies. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. God didn't throw us a lifeline that we could scramble up or a ladder or something like that. He didn't show us the way that we could make it on our own. He made it so it was very clear to us that we can't. There's no possible way. And then he saved us so he could put his mercy on display. God's mercies. So keep God's mercies in mind here. It's an amazing, amazing thing. And there is only one reasonable response to this incredible outpouring of God's mercies. And that is to offer ourself to him entirely. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies Present your bodies. And it's talk, he's not talking about flesh and blood. He's not talking about my physicality. He's talking about the entirety of who you are, your whole active being, everything that is you, what it means to be you. Offer that to God. Offer that to God. 
We have some contrasts. I'm going to read you just a few verses out of Romans 6. You want a, a, a dark picture of, of um, well, it's, it's not dark, but it's the dark portion of a very bright picture in Romans chapter 6. I'll read verse 13. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. He says very similar things in verses 16 and then again in verse 19. What part of us has God not redeemed? What part of us has he not redeemed? What portion of who you are has he not paid for with the blood of his own son? He's earned our allegiance in every possible way. And Romans 6 points out the the treason, the horrible betrayal when we hand our bodies over to the enemies of God to pursue what they would pursue, to go after things that are directly contrary to God. Moving on, he talks about here this presenting our bodies as a sacrifice, a living, holy, and acceptable to God sacrifice. This is our presentation. This is our offering. Of course, this is language from the Old Testament about sacrifice. And if you think about sacrifice in the Old Testament, almost always what happened to that sacrifice? There was like one or two exceptions. The scapegoat got to walk away. That was a good thing, right? But then he got to go out in the desert and die alone. So still ends pretty badly for him. But for the rest of sacrifices, what happens? They get killed in very gruesome ways, right? So the idea of sacrifice ends in death. Kind of a scary thing, right? Present yourself as a sacrifice. Yeah, I don't think so, right? I don't think I want to sign up for that because there, you know, involves knives and blood and, you know, stuff like that being dismembered. And I'm not into that. He says, offer your body as a living sacrifice, a living sacrifice. This is different. God doesn't want our death. He doesn't want us to go present ourselves to be martyrs for his glory. He wants us to live lives for his glory, to continue on and continue on as living, ongoing sacrifices offered to him. A sacrifice that is living. Sacrifice that is holy. Same language from the Old Testament. That is acceptable to God. So, he urges us to offer everything that we are. Ourselves in our entirety to God to serve him for his pleasures. In light of God's mercies in rescuing you from sin and death, he says, offer yourself completely to him. That's the appropriate sacrifice, the appropriate sacrifice. Different versions here. Mine says, uh, which is your spiritual worship, your spiritual worship. Some of yours read differently. Some say reasonable, reasonable service, true and proper worship, intelligent. This is your intelligent service. The difference in translation there is because the word is very difficult. And uh, I think it means kind of all of those things. It's referring to the, the, the connection that's between us and God. Uh, it has to do, I think, with the, the fact that we are created in his image. And so we have certain aspects of his fingerprint on us that make us unique in relating to God. 
that other creatures don't have. The angels don't have that same thing going on. Animals don't have the same thing. All of creation doesn't have that same thing. But there's a unique connection between us and God. We're created in His image. And I think that's what's being referred to here. It's appropriate as creatures who've been made in His image to worship in this way. And so that's why they're struggling to figure out, is it reasonable? Well, yeah, it involves our reason. It's also the right and correct kind of worship. It's true. It's proper as creatures made in his image to worship him that way. Obviously it's spiritual, but it's interesting. It started with him saying, present your bodies. It has to do with all of us. Our intelligent service, the way we worship him. So I think he's talking about all of us here, and that's the, the appropriate kind of worship that we should offer. So this makes a distinction. This should make a distinction in our minds when we talk about the appropriate or the spiritual worship, the true worship, the, the proper worship for creatures who have been made in God's image. This isn't just an offering of some physical thing, me walking by and handing my goat so that the goat can be killed and the offering can be made on my behalf. So it's not, it's not just that. It involves all of who I am. It's not just even me putting money in the offering plate. Because I can do that and my heart be far from God. Put money in the offering plate. It involves all of who I am. It's not even the same as just being here present. All of these things are good things. We don't offer goats anymore. There was a time for that. Now is not that time. All of these things are good things, but they can be done with a heart distant from God. And what does Jesus say is the greatest commandment? To love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, strength. All of us with our, the totality of our being. That's what we're to love God with. And that is what Paul is talking about here when he's talking about our spiritual worship. Worship with all of our being, with every bit of who we are. This is what we're to offer God. So present your whole body, present your whole life, all of who you are, everything that makes you, you, present that to God to be used by Him for His will, and that is your spiritual, appropriate, proper, correct, rational, reasonable worship. That's what it is. So do you want to render to God the kind of worship that He truly deserves and He desires from you remind yourself of his saving mercies that we talked about and present all of yourself to him and then pursue a mind renewed a mind renewed you see to this point he's told us what to do but we have no idea how to do it it hasn't been really spelled out for us what this looks like how can you offer the totality of your being to god to worship Him, a lot of questions remain. And so, verse 2, He's going to explain how to do that. He's going to explain how to accomplish that. So look at verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Do not be conformed to this world. The idea there is like you've been stuffed into the mold of the world. Stuffed into the mold. So you look like a, like a 
bunt cake or something like that. You've been stuffed into a shape that's not naturally yours. And it's because that's the world around us, the nature of the world around us. Bunt cake, I didn't know I was going to say that. <laughs> you don't look like a bunt cake. <laughs> the world has a certain way of valuing things, a certain way of evaluating what is important, what's crucial, what's critical. It has its own value structure that is very different from the one you find here. But guess what? We live in the world. And so very easily we can pick up the value structure of the world. And we often do this. And we don't even know it. This is something that missionaries face when they go overseas. And of course, if they're from America, their desire is not to make little American Christians where they go. They're trying to make Christians where they go. The fact is, the missionary is an American. And so we face this difficulty on the field trying to discern what's the American part of me and what's the Christian part. In my teaching, what am I teaching because I'm an American Christian? And what am I teaching because it's biblical and I'm a Christian? And we start learning, we start seeing about ourselves that actually we value quite a few things that don't come from the Bible, they come from our surroundings. Some of those things are very good, and we're glad we value those things, and we hang on to them. Others of those things we realize, wow, I had no idea. I was blind to that effect of the world on me. And so it's true in culture. We live in culture, and we pick up values of the culture. It's true of the world. We live in this world, and it functions and values things differently than we do. And we brush up against it. We live in it and we start being stuffed into the mold of the world. And the fact is, many of us grew up wholeheartedly in the world. I kind of like the value structure of the world and that's what I went for. Right? And so it's not even just that the world is influencing me. I was actively involved in influencing myself that way. And he says, do not be conformed to the world. Do not be conformed to this age, the value structure of this age. Don't be conformed to it. The Lord commands us here not to buy into the lure of worldly conformity. Instead, He offers us inner transformation, change that He's going to bring about inside of us by His action. The reason I say that is because He says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Be transformed. That's a passive, which means it's happening to you. Something that happens to you from the outside. For example, if I said, I got hit. I got hit, right? I, re I received the hit. I got hit, all right? It was passive. But it's an imperative. It's a command. He says, be transformed. Be hit by transformation. And so it's a, it's a unique thing. The fact that it's passive, the fact that it's from the outside in and it's God who's doing the work on the outside in tells me that God is going to bring about within me this transformation. He's going to do this work within me. He's going to bring it about. It's His work. But it's an imperative to me. It's a command to me to be transformed. And so there's some aspect of my cooperation with it. I didn't I don't make it happen. I don't generate it. I don't cause it. I don't I don't work it up. But I cooperate with his work on my behalf. 
It's, it's as if I said to someone, let yourself be hit. That means don't dodge, right? Don't run away. Don't drop the guy, right? Let yourself be hit. You're not actually doing the hitting, but you're standing in the way of it intentionally. And that's what, that's the force of this imperative. It's passive. It's happening to us, but you're instructed to stand in the way of it. Cooperate with what God is doing in your life. Inner transformation that he will work within us. So how is this inner transformation accomplished in our life? Well, it's accomplished through the renewing of our mind, the renewing of our mind. Flip back, if you would, to Romans chapter one. We just read it, but I want to look at it again. He says in 12 2, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Let's remind ourselves of 128. What happens there in 128? Why does our mind need to be renewed? Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, he says in 128, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And if you finish that paragraph, it's scary. And you can look in the world and see it around us. The mind of man has become debased. It's unfit to judge what is godly. It's unfit to determine that. You see, when we think mind, when I think mind, I think the intellectual capacity that's going on, I point up here, but I, it's a, I don't know, it's a supernatural or something thing. I think of, in, of intellectual processing. I think of reasoning, those sorts of things. In the New Testament, when you run across the word mind, it's not just your cognitive abilities. It's your moral abilities and it's your will. They're all wrapped up in the mind. They're all wrapped up right there. And so when he talks about in Romans 128 that he gave them up to a debased mind, he's not saying they forgot how to do algebra. He's not saying they forgot how to think logically or they couldn't remember data anymore. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about the totality of the Greek idea of the mind, which involves the will what you determine you're going to do. It involves our moral reasoning, how we determine, determine, ascertain what is right, what is good, what we should do. That whole process has been corrupted. It's become debased. It's no longer able to discern what is good and right and true. It's been polluted. And so he says in Ephesians 4, that we need to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. We need to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. Well, how does that happen? How can we have our minds renewed? Well, the answer is it's the work of the spirit in our lives that he accomplishes as we fix our minds on the wonders and the glory of Christ himself. As we fix our minds on Christ himself and we think about who he is, we think about what he's accomplished, he works in our mind to shape, to renew our minds. I say it's the work of the Holy Spirit because the only other time that this word renew occurs in the Greek New Testament is found in Titus 3.5, where we read that God saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. This is the only other time that word is referred to. Renewal by the Holy Spirit. This kind of renewal is the work of the Holy Spirit on our lives. 
It's not just outward change or conformity to a new Christian set of rules. It's transformation. It's something the Holy Spirit brings about from within us in our lives. And He does so, according to 2 Corinthians 3.18, as we behold the glory of the Lord. He works that change in us as we behold the glory of the Lord. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. As we behold the glory of the Lord, as we look on Him in all of His perfection, we focus our minds on all the Bible teaches us about who He is, then we are changed. We are transformed. Our minds are renewed by the Holy Spirit. Would you like to have a renewed mind? One that is capable of reasoning morally, of willing in a godly fashion? Would you like to have a mind that's not your enemy, but that pursues God and is able to determine what is true and what is not true about God, what is good and what is evil? Would you like to have a mind like that? Would you like to be free from those old ways of thought and values of this world that wrestle for control of your life? Would you like to stop conforming to this age? Then be transformed from within. God will bring about that transformation within you as you set the eyes of your mind on Christ and His glorious mercies toward you. Remember Romans 1 through 11? He will renew your mind to be turned toward Him the way it ought to be. So dwell on Him. Meditate on Jesus. Fill your mind with truth about Him. Read the Bible regularly. And look for what it teaches about Christ. Read all of the Bible so you're not missing something that it says about Him. This is what the Holy Spirit uses to renew your mind. And that renewed mind is what He uses to bring about transformation from within. But God has a larger goal in this whole process. That we would have discernment. That we would have discernment. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Hebrews 5.14 uses a similar word. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. It takes practice to have discernment constant practice it takes maturity to have discernment it's not just something you fall into or you gain one sunday school class it's something god works in you over time as you cooperate with with what he's doing so how can we grow in discernment how can we test what is the will of god how can we decide how can we know for ourselves this is good and this is not good how can we do that well first of all we have the bible It's objective, it's outside of us, it never changes. Search the Bible for this situation you're looking at. Look through the Bible and find what it says about it. It's objective, it's there, it it will tell you. Secondly, prayer. When we're trying to discern what God's will for us is, why not ask Him? He's given us a very unique ability in Christ to communicate directly with God in God's throne room. We have a direct line with Him. Use it. 
Ask Him what His will is. And thirdly, in community. There's also a sense in this passage that we can help one another discern what God's will is. We can help one another. Now, of course, when you talk to a, a, a person, you're not going to get an infallible response, right? You're, you're going to get them mixed in a little bit. But talking to another maturing, growing Christian whose mind is being renewed can be very beneficial in determining what God would have you do. I bring that up because I think it's not an easy thing for us. It's not something we're used to doing. I mean, how often do you consult with your friends before you, before you make a move, before you buy this or that or, or before you undertake some financial thing or uh, before you move out of town or before you uh, make some change of career or before you s- switch churches? Do we talk to our friends about that stuff? Do we ask their input and then listen to their input? Do we do that? We might with our parents, but some of us don't even do it with our parents. There's an aspect of community right here. The renewed mind is not just in my person. I keep pointing to my head, but it's not just in me. It's in you too. Your mind is being renewed and we together can make a better decision. We I should listen to your input on my decisions and you should listen to my input on decisions. This should be something we run by each other. In these ways, by knowing God's word on the matter, by prayer and by seeking the Lord together with other Christians, you can test and discern. You can know what God's will is. Let's look at knowing God's will. He says, do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This knowing God's will is a very uh, interesting word that has a couple of significant aspects to it. The first significant aspect is that it's not a cognitive decision knowing God's will. I learned it. I read it in a verse and I learned what God's will is for me. I now know it. I have it in my brain. I know the data. It's not just knowing. This word carries with it the idea of learning and ascertaining, having in your brain with the purpose of doing it. And until you have that where... This is God's will for me. I'm going to do it. You don't know God's will. Even though you may know the data. And even though you may have memorized the verse. You don't know God's will until it's pushing you into action. You don't know it. And so this knowing God's will is very interesting because it it includes that that motivation. It includes the momentum, the, the motion. You know it and it pushes you to action. If you just know it and it doesn't nudge you to action, you don't know it. You don't know it in this way. You might pass the test. You might get the answer right. But you don't know it in this way. And this is part of his goal here. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God. That. That word that. So that. It's a purpose statement. It's a goal. It's telling you what is intended to come out of this. 
What's the purpose of the renewal of our mind in this inner transformation? What's the purpose? There's a purpose beyond just inner transformation and a renewed mind. It's that we would know in this sort of way God's will. That we would know what His will is and do it. That's the purpose. This is where the emphasis is. The emphasis is not on have a renewed mind and inner transformation. Those have a greater purpose beyond themselves of moving us into action to be obedient. To know God's will in that kind of motion. So knowing God's will and doing God's will are very closely connected with one another. And it's, it's because of what, what's in that, that little word. It carries with it that idea of motion, of momentum, of knowing it, ascertaining it for the purpose of moving into action, doing God's will. Doing God's will. That same word, I, I mentioned already the first aspect of it that's, that's really interesting. That same word looks almost exactly like and has a common root as the one in 128. Remember debased? A debased mind? That word debased and this word discern, they're like mirror images of each other. They're opposites of one another. The debased mind is unable to reason morally. It's unable to to will you to be godly. It is unable, it is not capable of discerning what God's moral will for you is. It's debased. And all of that is reversed right here when he talks about our discernment. It's the same word. It's negated here where he says debased. And we have the positive version here, discernment. It means that we we can understand. We do have the ability to discern. We start to, to be able to will to be godly. From, from within ourselves, we can pursue God. We can understand what His will is. He has undone the curse from 128. He's undoing it. He's renewing your mind, making it so that you can discern, so that that debased mind is being scrubbed away. It's being transformed. It's being changed. And now you are able to discern. I wish we had a better English equivalent, because in the Greek it's so clear that this and this are diametrically opposed. This is the undoing of this. It's wonderful. It's incredible. And that's what God is working in us. Just in closing here about this. He said in verse 1, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Which is your spiritual worship. And I said, he tells us to do it here, but he doesn't really explain how to make that happen. Verse 2 explains how to make that happen. It explains how to make that happen. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that you may be able to discern. You couldn't discern. Your mind was debased, and now you can discern. And so now you're functioning as you should be functioning. As a created being, created in God's image, you now have the renewed ability to discern what God would have you do. And I don't just mean by the red car, by the blue car. 
I'm talking about moral decisions in our life, things that we do. Is it, should I treat this person this way or should I treat this person this way? I've been wronged by this person. How should I respond, in anger or in generosity? Should I overlook this offense or should I pursue it? The difficult decisions of life, the red car, the blue car, who cares? These moral decisions, these things that we should do, they're going to have impact. He has reversed, he is reversing, I should say, that curse from 128, where he gave us over to a debased mind. He's now undoing that in us and making us able to discern. And when we're able to discern and able to function, able to decide what is God's will, able to pursue from our hearts what is God's will, that is us offering our whole body to Him. That is our spiritual worship when we're able to do that. And so He tells us how to do it. The whole goal of the whole thing is our true worship our living lives that are sacrificed to him for his will lord do you want me to treat this person this way or this way because i'm your servant i've been sacrificed to you you have my body you have my being what do you want me to do i'll do it with all that i am and then you go and do it true worship must come from the seat of our will and of our moral being. And the only way that can happen is with our mind renewed and with us being transformed from within. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Lord, I pray that you would work that in us. I pray that you would transform us from within. I pray that you would renew our minds. I pray that we would cooperate with your work in our lives, that we would stand there and get hit. I pray that you would do it. Lord, we long to worship you the way we should. We long to have united hearts and minds to worship you and not divided pursuing other things. Lord, help us all to worship you in this way. Help us all to pursue you in this way. Help us all to encourage one another to render to you true spiritual worship from all of our being. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.